We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to Everything Allegedly. My name is Sean, and thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Really appreciate that. I am happy to be back here behind the microphone because I've been gone. I've been gone for uh, basically two weeks. So when the dinosaur uh, episode dropped, I left, and I've basically been gone since then. I've been home for like a day or two. But it has been a, a, a amazing couple of trips, very uh, conspiracy-oriented, uh, very conspiracy-filled uh, trip, or at least I worked some of my... Uh, some of my interests into these trips and, uh, and they were great. I'll tell you a little bit about, uh, some of those. Well, I started off in Rhode Island. I went there for like, uh, a family function. And, um, and did you know there are ruins in Rhode Island? <laughs> it's kind of cool. They're like right in the, the center of Newport, uh, Rhode Island, which I did not know about. And you know what? Turns out, Nobody else knows anything about them either. They're like, yeah, these super old ruins are here. We don't really know what they're for. We don't really know what they are. Could just be a uh, <laughs> a clock. <laughs> Some people theorize it was a timekeeping device or something. But it's like this giant cylinder. It's huge. It's uh, it's it's several stories high, maybe three stories high. It's like this stone ruin. It's very cool. And uh, nobody knows why it's there. So they're like, um, you know, why bother? <laughs> don't, don't look into it because uh, Christopher Columbus, he, uh, he came here in 1492. And before that, nobody was doing anything. So, you know, shh, don't worry about it. <laughs> so anyway, I got to see those ruins. They were super cool. I took some pictures of them. I will uh, go ahead and post those. I also was looking into, you know, some of the uh, founders in that area and stuff. Some stuff that I'll that I'll put on the social medias that I that I thought was interesting. So anyway, that was a fun trip to uh, to to Rhode Island, which, by the way, Rhode Island named after Cecil Rhodes and. Um, yeah, if you don't know anything about Cecil Rhodes, look into him. Dude was basically the most anti-American uh, person you could ever be. And, uh, you know, he's got a state named after him. So anyway, uh, left Rhode Island and went to New York City. Uh, stayed there for a couple of days. And while I was there, I got to uh, see Sam Tripoli and Eddie Bravo uh, do a live show. And um, it was hilarious. Each one of them did a comedy set and uh, and then did like a round table of uh, conspiracy questions afterwards. Super cool. Uh, big shout out to those guys and also to um, one of uh, uh, Sam's uh, producers on uh, Tinfoil Hat, um, XG. Uh, big shout out to, uh, to him too. He actually gave me uh, some t-shirts and I... Um, didn't have cash on me. So he just gave me the shirts and he's like, ah, you're good for it, man. You'll, uh, I'm sure you'll contact me, Venmo me, whatever. And I did, I got him paid. So uh, big shout out to XG, super cool show. Really enjoyed. Everyone was uh, a lot of fun and it was very funny. And then um, 
then went to uh, to Florida, and uh, Florida is a very interesting place. I uh, I really enjoy uh, going to Florida. It's super hot this time of year. And um, I don't know if you know, but uh, there's a guy named Dr. Narco Longo, and he has a lot of these uh, really interesting theories about Florida actually being the uh, the Garden of Eden and the uh, the orange being uh, the, uh, the the fruit um, and uh, you know it's it's it, you you kind of uh, uh, cruise around Florida and you get that feeling it kind of feels like that it feels like a, a sacred garden of sometimes I've heard him I've heard him talk about how um, you know Florida has this life-giving energy. And when you think about it, that's uh, that's where old people go to live out the rest of their days. So I think there is uh, something to that. I, I think it's, um, yeah, there's something to Florida. So anyway, had a lot of fun um, running around Florida and, uh, you know, kind of uh, feeling the energy down there <laughs> and uh, thinking a lot about uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Narco Longo's um, theories about the place. And, um, you know, it also got me thinking a lot about scarcity and abundance. And I don't know why it was, uh, popping into my head so much, but, um, but Florida and, and especially some places in Florida, it just has a way of, uh, of pointing out, you know, scarcity, uh, versus abundance and, and what that looks like. I was, um, I was in Palm beach, for uh, for a good amount of time, and let me tell you, Palm Beach, Florida, is scarcity and abundance because uh, there is a, an an area of Palm Beach they call it uh, uh, Billionaire Row, and uh, that's basically what it is. It is a uh, <laughs> bunch of beachfront uh, billionaire mansions, not millionaire. These, these are not millionaire mansions. Millionaires would be laughed out of there. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, these are billionaire mansions, like hundreds of millions of dollars uh, are what these mansions cost. And they're compounds, and uh, you can see, because nobody's there uh, in August, at least none of the billionaires, but uh, you can see these houses are fully staffed, and there's tons of people you know, working on them constantly. And then... And then you basically go uh, across a couple of bridges and um, just down the road and, uh, and and you find people who are poor, like legit poor. And so within a couple of miles, you have some of the richest people on earth and then, you know, a couple of miles away, uh, uh, people who are, or are pretty poor. Certainly not the poorest people on earth, uh, but uh, compared to billionaires, <laughs> they would be, uh, they'd be very very poor. And so, so I've got, uh, uh, you know, this kind of, uh, juxtaposition in my head, I'm seeing, uh, you know, the, the abundance and the opulence of how some people, uh, uh, live in, in, uh, in Palm beach. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the scarcity that exists, uh, you know, just really close. And then while I was in Florida, I got to make another really uh, special stop, a really special visit, and um, I got to see another example of uh, of abundance. And it wasn't Billionaire's Row, but it certainly was the opposite of scarcity. And what I got to do was I got to meet uh, Jim Gale 
of uh, Food Forest Abundance, and I got to go visit his, mm, I'll call it a compound, that is uh, outside of Orlando, Florida. And uh, it is, uh, let me tell you, this is a, uh, a beautiful piece of uh, property that he has, and it's real freedom what he is doing. It's 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 basically a, a large property. It's got its own lake. It's got um, a lot of lush fruiting trees. It's got cattle. It's got fish in the lake. And what he's trying to do is create a completely self-sustaining community, just like real freedom. And uh, he also runs a company called Food Forest Abundance, which uh, helps people to design uh, food forests. So basically taking your, uh, your, I guess, useless lawns and turning those into uh, food producing spaces. So anyway, I got to uh, tour around uh, his property. Jim gave uh, my wife and I, my kids, all a tour of the property. And um, I posted one of the, uh, the videos of him and I talking on the Instagram and on the uh the, uh, the, the Minds page, so go over and, and, and take a look at that. It's just a little intro, but um, it was really great to see what he's doing out there, to see how he is really uh, living abundantly and, and providing this, this, uh, this abundant option to, to other people. And so all of these things together really just got me thinking about... Um, you know, what, what it means, what scarcity actually look like, what abundance looks like and, um, and, and how we're living in this scarcity paradigm and how the society that we have constructed around us is basically making us into constant consumers, uh, because of this scarcity. And it made me wonder, is this, uh, is this scarcity real or uh, is it a byproduct of greed? What exactly is this uh, scarcity paradigm that we uh, that we live within? And um, really, are are there those that uh, I'll say perpetuate the scarcity idea because they either well do they believe it, or is it a means to achieve ends? And in the end, <laughs> I think it's. Basically a little bit of both or a lot of both, really. But what is scarcity exactly? What is this uh, this word that I keep saying? And it's basically just the idea that there are, uh, you know, finite resources available to a growing population. So not only is there scarcity, but it is increasing. And um, the thing about scarcity is when something is is scarce, it becomes more valuable, like uh, <laughs> Furbies or um, or a Tickle Me Elmo or PlayStation whatever, <laughs> PlayStation Seventeen or whatever number they're on. So you, you know the scarcity is why people can justify uh, trampling others in the Toys R Us because <laughs> the the, uh, the the Christmas toy that year is scarce. So. Scarcity creates value. And so you could see how scarcity could be used as a tool when trying to create value. Now, I'm not the uh, I'm not the first person by any stretch of the imagination to start thinking about scarcity and what that means. It goes uh, pretty far back. Well, I'm sure it goes back forever, but uh, in our kind of modern context, 
the uh, the first guy to really start the scarcity craze was uh, Thomas Malthus. And uh, you, you may have heard of Thomas Malthus because somebody will say something is Malthusian. And uh, basically what Thomas Malthus uh, came up with, uh, his theory is that uh, essentially everyone's going to starve to get to death because of overpopulation. And, um, and because of that, because everyone's going to starve to death because of overpopulation, well, he, he, uh, he had a very elitist idea for how we should solve that. Uh, well, we should just kill poor people. <laughs> Literally, I mean, he, uh, not literally. He says it kind of figuratively, but literally that is what he means <laughs> in his writings. And so uh, if, um, if something is Malthusian, then um, they're, they're usually saying uh, it's Malthusian because it's a uh, cruel means to an end or, or something like that. But anyway, yeah, that's what uh, Thomas Malth- Malthus thought. This would have been uh, late 1700s, early 1800s. He came up with this idea that uh, people, we, uh, we reproduce exponentially. Uh, so if you look at a family tree, it's not linear. But food production is linear. And so by those two... I don't know, notions coexisting. The only um, the only possible outcome is the eventual starvation of everyone. And of course, <laughs> like, like every other chicken little, uh, he made a bunch of predictions. None of them came true. And uh, but he did start the craze. He did uh, really start the modern craze of scarcity because the elites, Ooh, they love scarcity. They love it. <laughs> the next guy, I've talked about uh, the the next uh, sort of uh, scarcity snake oil salesman. I've mentioned him on the podcast before, a guy named Paul Ehrlich. And this would have been uh, in the 70s. He wrote a book called The Population Bomb. And it's essentially uh, Thomas Malthus. Um, um, just kind of recycled into a new book and um, same thing population explodes everyone starves and uh, uh, he doesn't say it but he is uh, (laughs) implying that we need to do something about this overpopulation how do you do something about overpopulation I guess you underpopulate (laughs) it certainly seems like that's what the elites would um, would like for us a <laughs> little bit of underpopulation. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not putting words in their mouth. I mean, you can go watch Ted talks and, uh, and, um, uh, <laughs> Bill Gates will tell you himself <laughs> that there are too many people on the planet and that if he does a really good job with vaccines, they can lower the population on the planet. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I won't be giving my kids any Wait, So, so what is that? So you're telling me that if we vaccinate everyone really good, the population will go down? Huh. You're going to have to show me the math on that one there, Bill. <laughs> anyway, anyway, that's a tangent. So, yeah, um, you know, overpopulation, it's in the minds of all these people, the uh, the great controllers of our society. They take overpopulation very seriously because uh, they don't want us, like, taking up room on their planet. They don't want... <laughs> they don't want us breathing their air. So uh, they they can justify uh, the scarcity be, with um, 
uh, because of this overpopulation. So, you know, it, they either believe it on their end or they perpetuate it because, as I said, uh, scarcity is definitely a tool that they can wield. Uh, it works out uh, very well for those who are selling us stuff or for those who are crafting society because it does a couple of things. It makes us, uh, uh, thing, makes us think that things are more valuable, so we will pay more for them. It also... Uh, makes us um, uh, live in fear. And uh, fear is a great way to control people, to scare us into compliance. Maybe you won't have another kid because you think that the earth is getting too hot because the sun god is punishing us or something like that. (laughs) And uh, And if you don't comply with that, I guess Bill Gates will get you with one of his infertility vaccines because, again... I'm not making this stuff up, (laughs) and I hope all of you listening know this, but Bill Gates has been kicked out of countries for sterilizing women uh, against their their will (laughs) with his vaccines. And when I say Bill Gates, it's not him himself. You know, they they didn't march him out in handcuffs or anything. Uh, When I say Bill Gates, I'm talking about his organization like Gavi, you know, his vaccine alliance and and all the scumbaggy uh, stuff that he spearheads. But anyway... There's no overpopulation. (laughs) Newsflash, if my sarcasm wasn't implied, there's no overpopulation to worry about. Um, We are are certainly not overpopulated on the global (laughs) or flat earth plane scale. Uh, There's plenty of room out there. There's plenty of room. And, um, you know, uh, I've seen it said a couple of times and uh, you know, I haven't exactly worked the math out for myself, but I, I've, I've seen it said many times that the entire population of the earth could live in Texas, like in a single family home with a yard. And Texas is uh, pretty small on the uh, on the world stage. So if that is true, which I think it is because it's been cited so many times, um, there's just a bunch of open space out there. There's a bunch of space where nobody lives. And that is the goal. That the goal is to get us all into cities and uh, keep the places where nobody lives, uh, (laughs) uh, nobody living there. So, (coughs) excuse me, it's not just the uh, the population that is a concern. Uh, You know, scarcity, this this uh, this paradigm we live in, it extends to a lot of other things. The one that really comes to mind. When we talk about scarcity, and I mentioned it a little bit in the dinosaur episode, is oil. Because oil is a renewable resource. And I said it in the dinosaur episode because we were talking about fossils and I went off on a tangent. But fossil fuel is kind of what we call oil. But um, but fossil fuel is a brand name. It's a brand name uh, that was meant to... Uh, perpetuate scarcity. And when I say brand name, it's it doesn't have a trademark on it or anything like that, but it was essentially just that. It was a, uh, a campaign to uh, come up with a name for this new product, this new oil that would make it seem scarce and rare. And uh, when you think about things like uh, diamonds, <clears throat> De Beers will keep a bunch of diamonds. Uh, they'll buy up the entire supply of diamonds and hold them, you know, in their possession in vaults or whatever, and release them slowly to keep the price high. Well, the same the, the same thing holds true here with fossil fuels. They were trying to give the illusion that oil is more rare or scarce than uh, than it actually is. 
uh, Rockefeller wanted to charge top dollar for his product. And you can't justify spending top dollar on something if it's as common as water, essentially, which it uh, which it may be. It is uh, most certainly the second most plentiful liquid on the planet. And so you can't justify that if uh, if you don't make it seem rare and uh, and precious. But uh, there's tons of oil. It's all over the place. It is literally everywhere. It is on every continent, or I should say it's uh, in every continent. <laughs> it's not necessarily on the surface, but uh, it is uh, just right under the surface of basically every continent. It's everywhere, and it exists in many, many forms, uh, coal and, uh, and natural gas and uh, crude uh, oil, which comes in kind of light and dark and mixed varieties and everything else. So th- it exists in a bunch of different ways in the earth and, um, it's plentiful. Like I said, there is tons of it. And, um, I have said before, I have a, an encyclopedia set from 1930 and I like to reference it when I'm going to be talking about a, uh, a topic. So I did that with this one. I looked in my 1930 encyclopedia. I looked up oil and of course, it's got the entire rigmarole about uh, you know fossils, fuels, and all that stuff. But I noticed one line was very interesting, and it was talking about how uh, the oil supply is uh, you know scarce. <laughs> uh, uh, go figure. And it said that the USA is a top producer of oil, and uh, certainly were at that time, still are. But. Uh, in this article, or in this, uh, I should say, encyclopedia entry, it said that the U.S. has only 10 to 30 years left of energy. Only 10 to 30 years. So, uh, going to need to make some changes uh, quickly, because the, the USA is obviously going to be running out of oil very soon. But, uh, but that was 1930, and we didn't run out of oil in 1940. And uh, we didn't even run out of oil in 1960. (laughs) In fact, we have a ton of oil. What do you know? It's still around. But they were saying the same thing in 1930 that they're all telling us now. Oh, the oil's going to run out. And I remember... I remember when I was a uh, when I was a kid, uh, so it probably was in the '90s if I was reading something like this. I, I, the very same thing, uh, you know, the oil is going to run out in in ten to thirty years. And that particular article I remember was talking about uh, the Middle East, and it was talking about Saudi Arabia. But here we are, here we are. Saudi Arabia still got oil. We still have oil here in the U.S. There's oil absolutely everywhere. And uh, when I was a kid growing up in Southern California, we had these uh, these uh, oil uh, drilling uh, rigs and um, or wells, whatever they are. You know what these things are? They look like the uh, they look like a big metal version of the uh, of the drinking bird. You know, they bob up and down. And so in Huntington Beach, just just down the road from where I lived, uh, these things were pumping oil when I was a little kid and they're still going today. And um, I asked my mom about it and she said when she was a little kid, uh, they were doing the same thing. So you know what? Uh, if, if I haven't stressed the point enough already, the oil's everywhere. Don't let them tell you that it's uh, that it's running out because none of their predict- predictions have come true. We are pulling more and more oil out of the earth 
every single year, and it's still there. Um, I, I actually used to know a geologist who worked for the oil companies, and his job was to scout uh, new sites for oil drilling rigs. And what he told me was, yeah, it's basically everywhere. It's just a matter of choosing sites uh, to kind of maximize the the uh, the output of the wells, and that uh, we're never running out of the stuff. And I and and I thought, yeah, that that kind of makes sense. It's very interesting that he would tell me that so candid. But yeah, he would tell me that the stuff was absolutely everywhere, and that there's more of it than we will ever use. So so anyway, uh, why do I also think that oil is not scarce? Uh, why we can um, just use a ton of this stuff is because. Um, it's not a fossil fuel, like I said. It's not made from billion-year-old uh, dinosaurs. The the Earth uh, is assembling these uh, these carbon chains. Uh, oil is made out of hydrogen and carbon, and um, it, all farmers essentially know uh, about carbon sequestration. This is the Earth and the soil taking carbon down into it. So all of this CO two that you hear that is so awful. Well, the Earth. The earth sequesters that carbon. It goes down into the earth. And uh, and somehow, somehow our earth uh, assembles these things into, uh, into, into uh, hydrocarbons, into uh, usable fuels like oil and natural gas and, and uh, coal and, and whatnot. And so... Um, you know the funny thing about if if you uh, if you have seen recently they they don't claim that oil is dinosaurs anymore. By the way, uh, now now they claim that um, it's like uh, plankton beds or something like that. They say it's millions of years old. These uh, plankton beds because when you think about it, there's there's obviously no way oil came from dinosaurs because when things die. They, they don't just die in massive uh, pools of dead animals that instantly become, you know, covered in soil or whatever and then turn to oil. I mean, we can look at a decomposing animal today and see how the bacteria and everything takes care of uh, all of the... Um, you know, organic matter before it turns to oil. So it's totally preposterous to think that, you know, oil comes from dinosaurs or anything like that. So I guess that's why they have changed the their tune. And, and now they talk about it being plankton or sea life or whatever. But it obviously comes from the earth. And um, I'm not just saying that because I believe it, but uh, I'm saying that because it's the logical way for oil to be produced because we can make oil. We can make oil right now. And um, it's easy. It's actually pretty easy to do. So the reason that I say the the uh, Big Bang is nonsense, because I say that all the time if you've been listening, is because we can't recreate the Big Bang and we can't recreate the spark of life. That's very important. Scientists today can't get even close to creating life. So they can't take non-living things and even make a single cell of life, even though they know the chemical constituents even though they know, you know, what makes up life, they can't create it. Completely impossible. They're nowhere close to doing it. But, <laughs> but uh, we can make oil. And like I said, it's pretty easy. There have been um, quite a few attempts at doing it on a large scale. But um, the, the thing about it is um, it's, it's easy to do, but it requires a lot of um, energy input. So basically you can make it out of anything that is carbon. Uh, you can use like animal waste products from, uh, say, 
like a slaughterhouse or something like that. You can use wood and plastic. You can make it out of trash. I mean, you can make oil out of basically anything. But what you need is you need a lot of heat and you need a lot of pressure. And, um, and so it doesn't really uh, make sense to do it because to make that heat and to make that pressure, we are using fossil fuels to generate that. <laughs> we are using oil to generate that heat and to generate that pressure. Uh, it doesn't take millions of years. And in fact, uh, it only takes a couple of days. It takes about three days to make oil out of these things. And so uh, interestingly enough, when you think about what does the earth have, wouldn't you know the earth has a bunch of heat? And a bunch of pressure. So the earth is making oil. <laughs> the earth is making it. It's, uh, it's producing it for us. And so, so this, this oil myth of it being uh, scarce and it being uh, something that is going to run out. Well, these are purposeful and these are deliberate and these are meant to make us live in scarcity. And what they're trying to do uh, with this scarcity is kind of separate us from our human energy, to take our energy, take our life force, and to trade it for things that are um, artificially inflated as far as cost. And, um, you know, we have a finite amount of energy each person can put out, and um, we are willing to uh, to make this trade, take our life force and uh, use it to to buy things. And we're willing to do this because we perceive this stuff uh, to be accurately priced in the marketplace. But you know, what if the the things that we uh, that we spend our energy on and and uh, you know, by extension, our money, what if the things we we spend, on are not as uh, rare or scarce as we are led to believe. And because I, I laid out the long case for oil there, because oil and energy, it is the precursor to many other things. It's not just oil. I mean, you have to think downstream of what oil is. It is the most uh, plentiful energy source that we can harness. Obviously, the sun is providing much more energy, but we can't harness that the same way. So, in a in a unit of measure uh, that we can like transport and bottle up and move around, energy uh, is is best stored in in oil, at least so far. And so, you got to think about downstream. What does oil? effect? What does it do for us? You know, food and fertilizer come to mind because uh, most of the food growth currently, uh, you know, farming and whatnot happens with industrial fertilizers. The uh, It's called the Haber-Bosch process, named after the two guys who invented it. But this Haber-Bosch process is the process of making ammonia uh, out of hydrogen and nitrogen. And those two, uh, hydrogen and nitrogen, are some of the most plentiful uh, elements on Earth. And so this Haber-Bosch process that makes ammonia is a way to essentially put carbon, uh, you know, back into the soil to fertilize the soil to grow more things. And this is essentially like a, a blessing upon humanity. And so what you need to do that is you need large amounts of energy. In the same way, I mentioned that the earth may be uh, creating oil with uh, heat 
and um, and high uh, uh, sorry high temperature and with pressure. Well, so does this Haberbosch process. It uses a ton of oil and um, mostly natural gas to uh, to create these chemical fertilizers. And so we absolutely need oil and uh, and natural gas to uh, create the food supply that we currently have. So if you stop the oil and gas, you essentially stop the food. And um, at least that's the way it is currently in the world today. And so, um, you know, the funny thing is when you look into the Haber-Bosch process like I was just doing, one of the things that you'll always see is there's always like this... Uh, I don't know, footnote or half snarky comment in there that uh, it's thanks to the Haberbosch process that the population has absolutely exploded since then. And so, yeah, I I think they give you this idea, or at least it feels like when you're reading these articles, that uh, if it wasn't for the Haberbosch process, you know, this overpopulation wouldn't be, uh, you know, rampant and, and out of control as it is today. But again, it's not the case. Uh, because we are using this God-given oil to create the fertilizer that we can then use to feed uh, millions and billions of people. It is our right as the inhabitants of this earth to do so (laughs) and to live abundantly with the things that we are given, to be stewards of this earth, I might say. And so, you know, it's it's, uh, the oil and and fertilizers and farming, uh, that is... uh, when I think of scarcity and I think of abundance and I think of the paradigm that we're living in, in that way, uh, those are the biggest ones that come to mind, but obviously there's plenty more. I mean, the money supply, money supply is meant to be scarce. And you may be saying, well, the money supply is increasing like crazy and you would be right because, uh, you know, it takes a lot more dollars to buy things, but you know what? The prices are going up as well. And our money is becoming more scarce even though we have more of those dollars cost $600 at the grocery store the other day. Let me tell you, that feels like scarcity to me. And, um, you know, housing, uh, housing is another basic human thing that we need and houses are everywhere, right? They're, they're abundant, except they're not because they're super expensive. And that is by design too, because they want us all to rent. They want us all to live on the plantation, and so that's why BlackRock is essentially buying up all the homes, and um, and uh, and they're going to rent them back to us. That that's what they're using all their uh, massive amounts of capital. BlackRock and these other uh, giant funds are are buying up uh, residential real estate because they want to rent them back to us because um, because that is scarcity. Owning things and having control over it uh, is is freedom, is abundance. But if you're, uh, if you're uh, uh, renting and you don't, need, you don't need any more resources than what it takes to, to stay in your rental, well, that is scarcity. And again, that's the paradigm that they are trying to perpetuate. Uh, think about climate change. Again, uh, we, we could go directly from the last one where I mentioned BlackRock and move, <coughs> excuse me, right into climate change because BlackRock is the big uh, proponent and uh, perpetrator of the ESG scores, which have a lot of uh, climate restrictions. If you don't know what ESG ESG scores are, it stands for Environmental Social Governance. And essentially, if you want to do business with BlackRock or any one of these other large funds that has signed on to them, your 
company is required to follow certain sets of rules. And many of those rules are around, you know, social justice stuff like, uh, uh, you know, whatever, gay and trans rights and all that stuff. Or, but most of them are, really have to do with, uh, you know, the, the climate crisis, uh, so they say. And uh, like, is the climate getting warmer? Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe it is. But uh, should we really be trying to do anything about it? Because when you think about it, a warmer climate is associated with uh, more life. There's, uh, there's more life on the planet. Plants grow easier. There's a greening effect that happens. More CO2. Uh, the plants use up more greenhouse effect. And if you didn't know this... Uh, the greenhouse effect, uh, plants grow well in greenhouses. <laughs> so even their stupid names don't work out very well. Uh, carbon sequestration. This is another thing. Here's Bill Gates again, right? He's, uh, he's getting into the carbon sequestration game. And so they're setting up these big factories or whatever they are that pull carbon out of the atmosphere. And it's totally crazy. It's totally crazy. And it's totally anti-life because, uh, because a warmer climate, more CO2 in the atmosphere is associated with more life on Earth. And so, uh, you know, they're going to charge you carbon credits. Because after all, if you use energy, well, now you got to pay for it, right? It's just more and more and more scarcity. Everywhere you look, scarcity. And, um, you know, that that's why we shouldn't play into it. That's why we shouldn't be buying these stories about uh, scarcity with all of their fear. I want to live abundantly. And so um, so there you go. You got population, the population uh, bomb, the population exploding. It's not real. Oil, uh, obviously a renewable resource, super plentiful, and uh, we should be able to use as much of it as, uh, as we need. And not just oil, coal, natural gas, everything else. Food, we, we, should, uh, we can produce food abundantly uh, with the fertilizers. Um, you know, money, if it, if it wasn't for the, uh, the central banks, money would, be, uh, would, would, would quite simply just be a representation of, uh, of uh, or a store of value is what money would be without the central banks diluting our money supply. And then the climate, obviously nothing to worry about there. So you can see with a couple of my examples that this scarcity paradigm that they're having us live in is not a real thing. And we should not be, um, we should not be living in fear because of it. Because the, uh, the solution is simple. Don't worry. I'm not going to sit here and bitch to you about all these things and not give you solutions. The solution is simple. <coughs> Excuse me. All we need to do is become billionaires like those in Palm Beach. <laughs> Isn't that easy? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, that's, that's not the solution I have. But, uh, but seriously, we, we do have to do something. What can we do? Because I would love to tell you, I'd love to tell you it's just like super easy. Just go out and live abundantly because it sounds nice, but it's not really reality. Um, it's not that easy. You can go out and you can live off the land and uh, you can produce everything that you need to sustain a uh, happy and abundant life. But it's really hard. It's really hard to do that. And it takes a lot of work. Most people aren't going to go uh, live out in the middle of nowhere and produce every single thing that they need and uh, completely uh, dissociate themselves from all of society because they're able to do that. 
It's not really reality. But we can do things to help us live more abundant lives and not in that scarcity paradigm. And a lot of them we talked about right before the dinosaur episodes. We talked a lot about prepping because prepping is living abundantly. And um, if you didn't listen to those episodes, go back and listen to the two episodes I did on prepping. Prepping is abundance. Uh, prepping is uh, is mental abundance. And um, you don't feel the scarcity when you have that safety net. And, um, you know, there are, there are other things we can do. Um, one of the best ones to do is to move out of cities. <laughs> I got, you know, most, uh, <laughs> people that listen to this show, I'm assuming aren't living in uh, New York city or these, uh, very dense cities. But if you do, <laughs> you should move, you should move out of those. When I was in New York city visiting, I had this feeling the whole time that I'm like, wow, I sure hope they don't start dropping nukes. Because if that happens, <laughs> well, first of all, they're probably going to hit New York City. But if they start dropping nukes and they're not in New York City, well, it seems like a real scary place to be because it's going to be tough to get out of there. And there are not a lot of resources around when you're in a big, dense city like that. So my first piece of advice would be move out of the cities, move out of the population centers, because... Um, all of the abundance in cities is uh, it's faux, it's created, and it is uh, it's fleeting. So uh, so there you go. Now, if you do move out of the city, you can uh, start to work on your own abundance, and uh, you can do that by uh, producing your own food. I gotta tell you, nothing feels more abundant and less scarce than having food growing in my yard and, um, and having animals. We have, uh, we have animals, we have chickens in our yard that are producing eggs now. And, uh, we don't have that many of them. I think we have 15 or something like that, but these things are producing a ton of eggs and they're producing them faster than, uh, than we can, uh, we can use them in our household. So we, um, we can share them. We can share them with our neighbors and our family. And really that is true abundance right there because mostly what these chickens eat is uh they forage they they go around uh our property and and mostly just right on our lawn and um they eat the bugs <laughs> kind of like uh the world economic forum wants us to do they go out and they eat z bugs uh, they, they eat bugs, they eat plants, they forage all day long, and then they produce for us these eggs, these abundant, uh, with nutrition, these beautiful eggs. And, um, let me tell you, that is true abundance food that comes from my property feels like just about the most abundant thing ever. And you don't need a lot of space. You don't need a lot of land to do these things. I mentioned this in uh, in the prepping uh, podcast. I don't have a lot of land. Most of the land that we have is uh, uh, not very uh, usable because it's like swampy and stuff. But uh, you don't need a lot of land. You can... Uh, you you can have uh, backyard chickens and you can grow a garden in in very very little space and um, you know divest yourself from the beast systems that's that's my other uh, uh, set of advice here you know get, 
as much as you can, uh, you know, get out of the financial system, invest in your, uh, in your property, in your, uh, local abundance, you know, bring that, um, to the, uh, the farmer's market too. And, uh, you know, divest from the medical system, the, uh, the medical system. I've, I've done an episode on it. Go back and listen to the episode about medicine, but really, uh, medicine and, uh, that system, it's all part of the depopulation plan and a plan to separate you from your resources, i.e. your money, because the medical system generates a ton of money, but what it doesn't do is generate results. And those results should be health. But people aren't healthier, so you can get out of that system too. But the most important, the most important thing you can do uh, to, to live in abundance and not in scarcity is your mindset. The mindset is the important part because scarcity is like a macro idea. It's a big, it's a top level idea. It's the 30,000 foot view. And so we need to change our mindset about scarcity. Uh, don't expect the oil companies to, to uh, you know, go out and start producing free energy for us because that is not going to happen. But um, on the other hand, uh, these uh, these systems, um, they create the kings that rule over us. So we have to to get out of this fear and uh, we have to know that the earth can provide for us. And that these fear campaigns of overpopulation and resources running out, these are not real. And so, yes, they they may be real if you live in a dense city and you re- rely on these, uh, these supply chains to uh, keep you alive. But just know that the earth can provide and that it is an option to, uh, to live abundantly. It probably sounds like I am advocating for some communist utopia or to move to uh, one of the uh, 1970s like California hippie colonies. And in some ways I am, but not really because, um, well, because first of all, where communism is concerned, government is never the answer. They're not going to help us live abundantly. And um, they're not going to institute a system of abundance for us. But we can do it. We can do it because we can change our minds about what it means to live abundantly and know that the earth can provide everything we need for abundance and freedom. And, uh, you know, another thing you can do, uh, since I talked about them earlier, another thing you can do to, uh, to explore your own abundance is to, uh, visit, uh, foodforestabundance.com. This is, uh, Jim Gales, the, the guy that I, that I, uh, visited there in Florida. This is his website and, and, um, his company, it's, uh, like a nationwide company that can actually help you, uh, grow food on your land. They essentially design these permaculture food forests that will produce food, um, in whatever amount of land you have. And, um, so by the way, I got to say, this is, uh, this is not a sponsorship, uh, in any way. Uh, when I did the tour of Jim's property, I, I, I paid for it. He didn't know that I was a podcaster or anything, um, you know, when I signed up for it. So I paid for my tour. Uh, this is not any kind of sponsorship or promotion. He doesn't even know that I'm saying this, but I just really like what he's doing. And I really like his mindset and what he is doing to help people live abundantly. And so, so that's it. Just know just know that it is our right as humans on this earth to live 
abundantly. And I know it is it is hard to uh, to envision because we are really deep in this uh, system that we live in. But um, you know. <laughs> Another thing uh, when it comes to abundance and it comes to this mindset that I think of is I'm not just doing this stuff for me. It's not just about me living abundantly, but um, this is about, about kids and the generation going forward. I want my kids to live abundantly. I want their futures to move towards abundance and away from scarcity and away from scarcity and towards freedom. And the only way we can do that is by changing the mindset because this scarcity paradigm, it is a big ship and it turns real slowly. And the only way we're going to do that uh, to change the, the, the trajectory is to change our minds about the things that we think are scarce and just know that we can live in freedom and abundance. Anyway, I beat that one to death. I hope that uh, I hope that you can give this topic some thought. What does it mean to you? Am I completely off the rails here? I definitely would appreciate it if uh, you send me an email and let me know or, uh, you know, comment on the social medias and just let me know what you think about this idea because this wasn't a uh, classic, uh, you know, conspiracy or alternative media topic. This was something that was just rattling around in my head and I just had this you know, this idea of scarcity and abundance uh, knocking around up there the whole time. So I wanted to talk about it and I really appreciate you indulging me. And I would also appreciate if you share the podcast, that is always great and um, would appreciate the ratings and reviews and all that good stuff that you guys do. All right. So there you have it. And I've got a song, (laughs) always got a song. And let me tell you, The song this week is a deep cut. I mean, a real deep cut uh, because I knew the song. I knew the song (laughs) in my head, but, uh, but it barely exists online. And it's real weird when you get online and like can't find something because everything is online, right? But, uh, but no, I couldn't find this one. It took me a long time to find it. And uh, because I didn't know who it was by, I just knew the song in my head. Turns out it's by a band called Orleans. And uh, you probably know uh, Orleans from their song, Still the One. You know, we're still having fun and you're still the one. (laughs) Oh, anyway, that uh, that song, Still the One, is on uh, what I (laughs) what I think might be the gayest album cover of all time. That song is on an album called Waking and Dreaming. By the way, if you haven't seen that album cover, look it up because it is very gay. <laughs> and I don't know if they're a gay band or what, but uh, but anyway, check out that album. It's pretty funny. Another fun fact I found out when looking for the song I'm going to play for you is that the uh, the founder of the band went on to become a like a Democrat U.S. House representative from New York. Uh, so he's probably not a fan of this show. <laughs> uh, I doubt he's going to hear this. But anyway, the song that I have for you, the song is called I Need a Break from My Family Vacation. <laughs> and it seemed kind of mean that I thought of this one because uh, the song is about <laughs> just that, needing a break from your family vacation. And um, 
I'm not jet lagged because I was in the same time zone the whole time, but I certainly am lagged in some way just from being gone for so long. And let me tell you, traveling with babies and toddlers, it is a, uh, it's a challenge. <laughs> so anyway, this song that I dug up for you guys, because like I said, it barely exists barely exists. I found it on YouTube. And, um, the funny thing about the YouTube page that it's posted on is like auto generated. So it's not even put there by the band or a fan or anything like that. It's, uh, it was basically somehow found by the YouTube robot and placed online for us now. And it's got like a thousand views, which is crazy to think about because this band actually had like a, a platinum hit. So anyway, here you go. Did I, did I play it up enough? This is um, this is I Need a Break from My Family Vacation by Orleans. I hope you enjoy it, and uh, we'll see you next time. Seafood, I think I'm 